Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Title today's message, Where Do You Want Your Soul? And ultimately, we all have the choice to make between heaven and hell, in which where we want our souls to go. And of, of course, we all choose heaven. There's a lot of choices we make along the way to get there, and how we make these choices depends on a lot of things about ourselves. A foundational text for this message is from one of my favorite epistles of Paul, Philippians, where Rav Shul writes, Messiah will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Messiah, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Rav Shaul preferred death to life at that point. He said it was better for him to simply die. Rav Shaul is a very strong individual, both mentally and physically. He survived stonings, beatings, multiple persecutions, and he survived going from one community to another and having his former community turn on him. He was a very strong man, both physically and mentally. And yet, he set aside what he wanted because he realized, for the betterment of the group, it was better for him to do something else. He took the needs of others and let them take precedence because he understood a strong group is better than just one strong individual. This reminded me of a story of a young man who was in San Diego, California. He was a recent recruit into the Navy. He'd been in the military for about a year at this point. And one night, one evening, he went out for a drink on the pier. He was at a bar, and a bar fight broke out. Very quickly, the police came and put everyone involved in handcuffs, and they sat him down. Now, this young man was a little bit panicked because he knew that if he was arrested he would be in a lot of trouble. Because in the military, you don't get the exception from double jeopardy. The local police can charge you with crimes, and then the military will also try you in their own courts. So this young man was sat down in cuffs. He waited until no one was looking at him. He stood up and ran out of the bar. I do not normally recommend this kind of behavior. He ran out of the bar, but he didn't run for the street. And once everyone realized what was going on, they, the police took after him. He didn't run for the street. He ran for the pier. He ran for the water. He knew he couldn't ultimately outrun the police, handcuffed behind his back. He can't get a great stride going that way, but this young man was in excellent physical condition. He ran all the way across the pier. He noticed a Navy destroyer about a mile out with its anchor down. And he jumped off 
hands handcuffed behind his back, into the water. Before you get too concerned for this young man's physical safety, let me tell you a little something about this young man. He was stationed in San Diego for a very specific school known as Basic Underwater Demolition School. Some of you will know it as BUDS. Some others will know it as Navy SEAL Selection. He had been trained to not only swim with his hands behind his back, tied tightly, but his feet tied together as well. He was in no way, shape, or form worried about drowning. And he, for all intentions and purposes, disappeared, as far as the police were concerned. He very slowly and calmly swam out to that destroyer. And yes, you can swim with yourself bound like that. It just takes time. He called out to the watch, who was understandably surprised to find someone in the water like that. Convinced the watch to pull him out, cut the cuffs off, he jumped back in the water and swam to shore. All it cost him was a waterlogged wallet. We would all agree this is a strong individual, both physically and mentally. Yes? You don't get much stronger than that. Swimming a mile in open water with your hands behind your back is tough. Something else about this school. Another story about the same group of people. They realize they're better as a team. Being caught alone in this school is disastrous. You always have a partner with you, no matter what you're doing. Officers who lose control of their people, who don't know where they are, the instructors do terrible things to officers who lose control of their people and don't know where they are. The instructors at another school would not confirm this story, but many years ago, a number of graduates of BUDS, as in Navy SEALs, went to another school the military offers, survive, evade, resist, escape, otherwise known as SEER. These young men go there, and women, if you have a significant chance of being captured at any point. This school trains you to survive in disparate environments, evade capture, if captured, resist your captors, and then escape. The school has a very odd and awkward culture because the instructors are pretending to be enemy combatants who have captured you, and they don't hold back. There's a rule that they'll only send a couple graduates from BUDS at a time. Because years ago, they sent a whole group of them who took over the school. (laughs) They literally made their would-be oppressors hostages. And they had to shut the whole thing down, break up the groups, and put them through the training again, because that is never supposed to happen. These people are the toughest the Navy has to offer. And they knew that in a group, they were so many times stronger, they were infinitely stronger than any of them would be individually. And individually, they're terrifying. They understood the value of teamwork. They understood the value of community. Strong individuals working together in a group can accomplish anything. Many of us aspire to be students of Torah, students of the Word, followers of Yeshua. And we don't just want to be timid in this, and we don't want to be bottom of the barrel. Especially many here spend lots of time studying. The Talmud has some things to talk about a Torah scholar. 
If you are a scholar of Torah, you have to live in a city which contains ten things. A court of law, a sadaqa fund, a synagogue, a bathhouse for a mikvah, a public bathroom, a doctor, a blood letter, we would call that preventative medicine today, a scribe, a butcher, and a teacher. Without these things, you cannot be a Torah scholar in that city. It's forbidden for you to live there. Because Judaism has always understood you cannot really understand God's word on your own. You have to be in a community. Next week's Parsha, Mishpatim, begins in an interesting way, and it goes on to link it to a proverb, Proverbs 29.4. The king by justice establisheth the land, but the man who sets himself apart overthroweth it. And that sets himself apart, you'll often see it translated greedy or accepts bribes, but it's too remote from the word tirumah, meaning to separate or elevate. And it's often referred to either bribes or also offerings. We aspire to be students of God, Torah scholars. But this cannot exist outside of a community. As the Midrash states in Mishpatim, now these are the ordinances. The scriptures tell us elsewhere, the rabbis write, the king by justice establisheth the land, but the man who sets himself apart overthroweth it. The Torah's king rules through justice, and thereby causes the earth to endure. But the man who sets himself apart overthrows it. This implies that if a man acts as though he were tirumah, the portion separated, or set aside for the priests, by secluding himself in the corner of his home, and declaring, what concern are the problems of the community to me? What does their judgment mean to me? Why should I listen to them? I will do well without them. He helps to destroy the world. Hence, the man of separation overthroweth it. Where do you want your soul? It is sinful to isolate yourself. Most of us in Messianic Judaism had to rebel against something to get to where we are. First of all, most of us in here are American, so we have it in our national heritage, in our culture, that we fought off the British. We're rebels at heart. And whether you're an immigrant or you are natural born, you share in that heritage. And everyone in here, most likely, had to rebel against something, either the rabbinic teachings on Yeshua or the church's teachings on Torah, to arrive at where you are today. This constant rebellion, though, is not a way to build a community. I've met many who take pride in having never belonged to a congregation. I'd never join a group, a congregation, a synagogue. And then others who see the number of communities they have left as a badge of honor, and they take pride in it. God's people, the body of Messiah, is not for any of us to use as a cheap date, and is not for our pleasure or convenience, and it is not disposable. Community brings us closer to God, and is a sign of our relationship with Messiah. The author of Hebrews talks about closeness with God in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Look at the language here. 
The Yom Kippur imagery abounds. Brought into the Father's presence by the blood of the Lamb. Closeness with God. Our souls being cleansed. And what does this drive us to do in the very next verse? And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Genuine closeness with God, walking with Yeshua in truth and not conceited, requires us all to be in a committed community regularly with other believers. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile by birth, none of us get Yeshua without his people. And those of us born Gentile, you are grafted into God's people. You are not grafted into the Torah. We do not get God's word without his people. Why do we come here? We come here, ultimately, as Hebrews says, for community, to encourage each other, to love and good deeds, to sharpen one another, and to learn. Another word used for synagogue is shul, which is the Yiddish word for school. Years ago, I read a book titled Traditions by Dave Lowry. The book has nothing to do with Judaism or Torah. It discusses traditional aspects of martial arts, specifically karate. Dave Lowry devotes an entire chapter to the importance of training with others and not in isolation. The title is chaptered, the chapter is titled Lone Wolf. He discusses the idea, the romantic notion, samurai off on his own is not only ridiculous, but appeals to an adolescent mentality with shallow promises of power and respect, things which adolescents are rarely in surplus of. The idea of a wolf out on his own is not effective. Wolves are meant to hunt in packs, just like humans. They're more effective in social environments. Lowry writes, A real lone wolf gets to be that way because he can't function in the pack. Maybe he's wounded or sick. Maybe. Are there any wolf psychiatrists out there? He isn't emotionally stable enough to cut it with the rest of his kind. In any event, the lone wolf in real nature is more to be pitied than admired. He's a loser, to put it bluntly. Most lone wolves succumb to disease or predation or injuries. Do not be a lone wolf. Be part of a community. Do not make yourself a leper and set yourself apart. Develop yourself as part of a pack, as part of the bride of Messiah. We all have a role to play wherever you are. We all have unique gifts, talents, and callings. As it says in 1 Peter, as each one of us has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. How are each of us using our gifts or even just your own two hands to clean up, to help. Cleaning up and lending a hand is not a special skill, and idle conversation is not a special gift. Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century theologian and preacher, had some interesting words to say about people who separate themselves from community. He called them worthless bricks. He writes, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't need, intend to give myself to any congregation. I say, why not? And they answer, because I can be just as good a Yeshua follower without it. I say, are you quite clear about that? You can be just as good a Yeshua follower by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient? There's a brick. What's the brick made for? 
It's made to build a house. It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground by itself as it would be as part of a house. Actually, it's a good-for-nothing brick. So, you Rolling Stone Yeshua followers, I don't believe that you are answering the purpose for which Messiah saved you. You are living contrary to the life which Messiah would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. Tough words. He doesn't really spare anyone's emotions here. For those of you wondering where Spurgeon got this whole notion of, of bricks of us being stones, 1 Peter 2, you also are living stones, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Messiah Yeshua. We are called to work as a team, as an army, to help each other edify, admonish, lift up. We're called to live life together. So what practical elements does this entail? We contribute to a community with our time, with our talents, with our money, with our efforts. We involve ourselves physically, emotionally, and financially. As Yeshua said in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. From where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do you store up treasure in heaven? I've known this verse since I was a child. You always hear, store up treasure in heaven. Excellent, will do. How do I do that? I can't answer that question for each and every one of you comprehensively. For starters, look around the room. Help, love, serve, invest yourself. Yeshua bought and redeemed us with his blood. We should be ashamed if we give him anything less than our lives. Now, some of you are thinking, community sounds great, but in the real world, it gets messy. Real people sin. Real people screw up. They make mistakes. And they often do a lot more than just speak coarsely to you. People sin drastically many times, and they hurt others. Yeshua discusses this in Matthew 18. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the congregation. And if he refuses to listen even to the congregation, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. What is Yeshua saying here? If you have a problem with someone, go talk to them first. You don't get to go blab it around the whole congregation. You don't get to throw it up on Facebook or tweet about it. Approach the person one-on-one. If you see someone doing something they shouldn't be doing, whether it's small or whether it's huge, protect their dignity. Approach them one-on-one, and if you convince them, if you show them their sin, you won your brother. Maybe they don't appreciate your correction. Maybe you're not the right person to deliver the message. Bring someone else in. And then, if they still don't listen, that is when you bring it to the group. Not before. Often the last person to hear that we have a problem is the person themselves. And that is completely against what Yeshua says to do. 
Rav Shaul discusses this in a different vein in Galatians 6. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. If we catch someone sinning, if you are spiritual, do we set out to destroy them, hang it around their neck, label them? And I'm talking any sin here. I don't mean someone who's just a little bit sharp in conversation. I don't mean we we caught someone lying a little bit. I mean any sin here. Do we restore them or do we destroy them? Rav Shul says to restore them if you're spiritual. I hope we all here at least want to be spiritual, be filled with the fruits of the Spirit. Chickens, if any of you have ever raised chickens, have an interesting thing they do when one in the flock has a blemish. And if you've raised chickens, and at some point you've watched this happen. Once one chicken in the flock has a blemish, the other chickens will attack it, and they will peck at it. And they'll usually, if you don't isolate them, kill the chicken with the blemish. We are not called to do that. When we see a brother with a blemish, whatever it is, it is our duty as his brothers and sisters, to restore that person, as in bring them back to the point they were before. This is a tough thing. This is a tough pill to swallow. Everyone take a second, and thank you in advance for your full participation. Look around the room, and pick someone you really admire, someone you look up to, someone you like. Go ahead. Thank you for your full participation. Imagine you found out that person confided in you or even caught them in the act of adultery, fornication, homosexuality. What would you do? Would you put a label on them? Or would you try to restore them to where they were before? (laughs) Do you think King David woke up one morning and said, you know what I'm going to do? Writing psalms is great and all. Being known as a man after God's own heart, that's pretty cool too. I think I'm going to steal one of my best friend's wives, get her pregnant, and then have him killed. I don't think King David woke up one morning deciding to do that. If he can do that, any of us are capable of anything. As Paul says in Galatians 6, so that... Use a spirit of gentleness, meekness, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. If King David can fall into that kind of a sin, we are all reliant on God's grace and his mercy. Imagine you had committed one of these sins and you're confessing it to a brother or a sister. What kind of a response would you get? Are they going to seek to restore you or are they going to peck at you? I've had multiple people confide in me that they were uncomfortable confessing their sins because they knew they would be labeled, they knew it would be hung around their neck, and they didn't want to be known as that guy or that girl. That is not the kind of community we are called to be. Moses, King David, Apostle Paul, what do they all have in common? Murderers. Solomon, King David, Samson. Struggle with lust. Peter denied Yeshua multiple times. 
Yet, we see Peter going on to do wonderful things. We see many of these men going on to do wonderful things. Rav Shaul wrote a number of letters, which many of us in here have spent time memorizing. And yet, he was practically a mass murderer before he came to Yeshua. Remember that something someone does, something you do, does not define you. And it does not restrict you or limit you. Forgiveness is absolute. And God's love has no limits. We're here to help and encourage and restore. Rav Shaul says in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility in mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Even in sin, we should ask how we would want to be treated to best help the sinner repent and be healed. Because we're not out to destroy each other or peck at each other. We're here to help each other. We're here to restore. Apostle James says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Healing from sin takes place in a congregation of healthy believers who trust each other and are eager to restore each other. Rashul says in Romans, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. There's nothing so high, nothing so low. You've heard the song, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no vial low enough. There is nothing that can separate us from God, created, seen or unseen. So I've got a question for everyone in here. And when I heard this, it hit me like a brick. What does it take to separate someone from your love? Do you have the love of God in you? Or is it self-serving love? What does it take to separate someone from your love? How do we love people who sin? And how do we restore them? I read something interesting a while back about how the Bambimba tribe in South Africa treats this. And many of you have seen this. There is a documentary on it. It's written, The lifestyle of the Bambimba tribe in South Africa was featured in a TV documentary on apartheid. Within this community of people, antisocial or criminal behavior is very rare. However, when it occurs, the Bambimba have an interesting and beautiful way of dealing with it. If a member of the tribe acts irresponsibly or criminally, he or she is placed in the center of the village. Work stops, and every person in the village, every adult, and every child gathers around the accused in a circle. And it sounds like they're building up to beat them down or stone them, but that is not where this is going. Then, one at a time, each person, including children, call out all the good things the person in the center of the ring has done in the past, All the positive attributes and the kind acts are recited carefully and at length. No one is allowed to exaggerate or be sarcastic. It's a serious business. This ceremony can often last for days until everyone is drained of every positive comment he or she can muster about the transgressor. Not one word 
of criticism is allowed. At the end of the tribe, at the end the tribal circle breaks up, a joyous celebration begins, and he or she is welcomed back into the community. Apparently, this overwhelming positive bombardment strengthens the self-esteem of the accused and causes the person to resolve to live up to the expectations of the tribe. Proof of the success of this creative response to wrongdoing seems evident in the fact that these ceremonies are very rare. Who has ever experienced love like this? This is the community reminding the person of who they really are. Because when we sin, it's in 1 John, a child of God does not sin. When we sin, we are forgetting who we are in Messiah. And this is the community banding around them, saying, let me remind you who you are. You're a follower of Messiah. You're a child of God. Maybe you forgot that for a moment. But we're here to remind you. It's the words of the Master. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Where do you want your soul? I got the title for this drosh from an interesting spot. The title came from a speech given by a former president, Theodore Roosevelt, titled The Arena. In it, President Roosevelt says, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Where do you want your soul? Is it in the arena? Imagine at the end of your life being presented with charts and graphs of who you could have been if you stepped into the arena, the skills you could have learned and taught to others, the lives you could have impacted, This is not pie in the sky. This is very practical and real. Where do you want your soul? It's a choice we all get to make. Do you want your soul to be with those cold and timid lone wolves, the useless bricks, those who store up no heavenly treasure, and they're all here for themselves? Chickens who peck at your blemishes until you're dead, as Theodore Roosevelt calls them, the critics. You're always one stumble away from losing their love. I need each and every one of you. My family needs each and every one of you as part of a pack, a unit, an army, a community, a synagogue, a shul, God's holy temple, the bride of Messiah. Fellow students of the word, prayer warriors, disciples of the master, eager to store up treasure in heaven with each other, 
ready to fight in the arena, to do whatever work we're called to do, to restore each other, to help each other, to experience the valiant efforts, the great triumphs, the devotions, and the enthusiasms, the errors, the shortfalls, and the failures together. We can choose to enter into the arena or to simply be the critic who will never know victory or defeat in this life and the lukewarm who are spewed out in the end. This is critical because when that day comes, it is my desire that we all hear from our Master, our Messiah, well done, faithful servant, and that none of us hear the terrifying words, away from me, I never knew you. So I ask you all one last time, where do you want your soul? Please pray with me while the music team comes up. Adon Olam, Master of the universe, Lord of eternity, it is our duty to praise you, to glorify and extol you. We each need each other because none of us can do this on our own. As we each war in the arenas of our lives, as our faces have sweat and dust and blood on them, guide us to you and your works and your salvation. For we do not war against flesh and blood. Please lead us to repentance and love for one another. The righteous man stumbles seven times and gets back up. By your grace, may we restore each other in meekness and humility. And may our love for one another, the love of Messiah, show for all to see. Lord, you bought your body, your bride, with your own blood. The least we can do is give you our lives, Yeshua. It is by your example we live, your teaching we follow, and by your sacrifice we draw close to the Father, and in your merit and name we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.